This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Harmel Academy of the Trades, a community of work, prayer, and study where men seek holiness through high demand, skilled trades. It's a great way for young men to get started in life by finding God in their daily work. For more information, go to harmelacademy.org. Hey everybody, we are finding God in our daily work here at the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, it is very good to see you today. We're recording this show on Friday morning. Ed, you're recording from your studio in suburban Washington, D.C. I'm uh, I'm traveling today, so I'm recording from a hotel room in Lincoln, Nebraska. But here we are, and it is good to see you and good to be with you. It is nice to see you too, J.D. <laughs> your hotel room looks very dark. I mean, you... You look like you're in a bunker. Well, I'm. I'm in. I was upgraded uh, to a. Uh, not. I didn't pay for more hotel than I needed to, but I was upgraded to what you might call a suite um, because I I travel a lot and um, and as a consequence of that, I have, I'm sitting in this sort of little living room, and uh, it's dark because I just have one little lamp on. But my bigger concern actually is that this might be the echoiest room that I've ever been in, and I don't know if you're getting an echo in this show, but I feel like I'm giving off some echoey vibes in here. No, no, no. You're you're coming through perfectly fine on my end. Oh, well, maybe. You don't need to worry about that. Maybe it's just, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in this hotel room in Lincoln, Nebraska, because I'm, I'm going to um, uh, speak at an event tonight and tomorrow here in Nebraska, and so I'm here, I'm traveled here for that, but, but I used to live in Nebraska, so that means that when I got here last night, I went to see, um, you know, old friends and had... Uh, a drink or two or three, and so um, I think maybe I just uh, I prefer it a little darker in here this morning. You know, I see, I see. Like You're still living in the harsh night. Harsh lighter day and all that. You know, you know how it goes. Oh, fair. And enough. we're recording the show kind of early, to be fair. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose <laughs> maybe. It's what a, time zone are you maybe in? Maybe right it's a now? relative thing. Well, I mean, I don't want to give that away. You know, I, okay, I've said fair. a lot already about where I am. Wait, there's more than one time zone in Nebraska. Uh, actually, as a matter of fact, of course, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's one big court field. <laughs> okay, so, um, uh, Ed, we have a lot to talk about this week, and I think it would be best, if it's all the same to you, if we got to it. So, um, I think that we should probably talk a little bit about... Um, Vatican finances, I agree. Yeah, we could start there. Okay, I had some other things that I think that people wanted to hear about, but a lot has happened. In no, the, they don't. We are we have left you know we have left the summer doldrums behind, and we are now in the swing of big news all the time. This is a great time to be a listener to the Pillar Podcast because a lot of things are happening in the life of the church right now, and you know we're going to break them down for you. It's also a great time as it happens to be a subscriber to the Pillar Podcast because they're the people who make it possible for us to break it down to you. So if you're if you're not a subscriber to the Pillar, you know just PillarCatholic.com. Hit the little subscribe button and keep us in business. But uh, whether you choose to keep us in business or not, Ed is still going to tell you all about Vatican finances right now. No, I, I'm not going to tell them all about Vatican finances. But I mean, this is this is something that happened this morning. It's something that happened four hours ago. And does it involve Alessandro newsl- Didi? It does. Yeah, I had to get a newsletter out this morning, and I had to record the show, and I have to go to a wedding later on today. So I, I haven't gotten to write the thing I want to write about it yet, but I will be writing it at some point. And it's it, it's a small news item that appeared in the Daily Bulletino from the Holy See that the promoter, the chief promoter of justice for the Vatican City State, um, Doctor, I I don't know if that's if that's a sincere well, doctor or if that's just Italian quotes. usage. Italians well, I are, don't know. Italians are generous with the doctor title, to be sure. 
Yeah, doctor just means someone with a job that wears a tie, yeah. effectively. <laughs> so I, I'm assuming he's a real doctor. I, I'm assuming he has an Italian legal doctor. They usually do. But anyway, um, Dr. John Piero Milano, who's the, you know, sort of, if you like, chief prosecutor, chief public prosecutor of the Vatican he's City the, State. He is the, uh, he's the promoter of justice is a term that means public prosecutor in the church's legal system in the Vatican City State. Exactly. Um, he he has resigned, and uh, it's my understanding that he's retired, basically. And uh, in his place, his deputy, his chief deputy, Alessandro Didi, has been promoted and made the new chief prosecutor for the Vatican City State. And this is this is a very interesting move. I mean, in a sense, it's it's what you'd expect. The guy retires, the deputy gets promoted. It's you know, it's the obvious no drama. Move. Yeah, why is this news? Um, why should anyone think this is something? Well, because like? Alessandro Didi is the one who's really been um, taking the lead role in the first in the investigation into the financial scandal and now in the actual trial proceedings. And he is combustible, I, I think would best describe his demeanor. He's he's um, he's aggressive. He's uh, he's got a little bit of a temper on him. He's uh, he's he's in it to win it. He's you know this is a guy who goes in with both feet studs up, and um, I, I like that sort of thing in a prosecutor. I think you know if you if you're not looking to to really stick the tackle, then you know what are you doing in the courtroom? Um, but I mean he's I mean Alessandro Didi is the one like if for example anyone who watched the footage which we've linked to in several of our articles going back a few months of the sorry I'm sorry I want to hear about this but I just. I think it's combustious. Combust- if he's combustible, it basically means that he himself could be set aflame. I think that he's combustious. No, combustible is, is perfectly ordinary usage. It's like you could burst into flames of, you know, whatever. I think time. when you're describing a person, you're saying that he's combustuous. No, I'm not. I'm, it is totally ordinary usage to describe a person as combustible. <laughs> I'm sorry, my friend. You're basically saying that he's flammable. Yes, yeah, but prone to spontaneous mean, combustion. No, prone no, no. What you mean is what you mean metaphorically is that he is inclined to sort of um, to sort of an incendiary tactic in the courtroom or otherwise. And that, that I think the word for that is to say that he is combustuous. I'm not denying that combustuous is a word. I am saying the correct and perfectly ordinary idiomatic usage to describe exactly what I'm describing is to describe the person as being combustible. I, 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 I'm, I'm afraid. I don't think so. And I'm going to take it to the readers or the listeners. If you guys think that Ed is properly describing a person as combustible, not to mean that the person himself might, you know, is capable of catching fire, but that the person is, you know, uh, highly incendiary as a tactic or something like no, that. No, 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 no. Highly but, incendiary, but prone to flashes of temper, sudden prone flashes, to flashes of, of temper. Right, exactly. If you think that the word for that is combustible, I think you could say that he has a combustible temper, but he himself is combustible only in the sense that all of us are, you know, Flammable you know and thus, and thus, and thus, we must remain at in as much as we can in a state of grace and make regular use of sacramental confession because all of us could burn, just as Jenny, this fellow. This is another example of your weird little personal obsessions, where what the rest of the world says and knows perfectly well, you've decided you don't like, and in no, your I don't mind, think this, I just don't no, think this is a phrase. I just don't exactly. think this is the way that, that we're that's about. my point. If you don't like a turn of phrase, it's, as far as you're concerned, it doesn't exist. I don't like it. It's no one I has ever used it before. I don't think it. Has. You have I, tried to pull phrases out of my newsletters before. Like this doesn't. This is not a word. This doesn't mean anything. And I've shown you usages going back, like through 
political, you know, speeches of the 20th century in Churchill, and it appears in Shakespeare, right. and it's Tur- just like totally of common usage century. for 400 years. But and you're not, like, oh, I've never not, heard of it. It doesn't exist. here in America. It's my, it's my job I think to our, ensure that I think that most that of our Ameri- readers are our- rather better read than you give them credit for. And I, I think that may be so, but I just don't think that it's... I think that when you refer to a person as combustible, what you basically mean is that they're flammable. And, and yes, indeed, it's true. Yes, that's the metaphor. That's the imagery. No, but when you're, ta- when, you, when you're using it metaphorically, I think you say that they're combustuous. Anyway, other readers will let us know. The listeners. Uh, uh, the listeners will also agree that most normal people can say that a situation is fraught, and that's fine, oh, whereas you start no, having a tick. it's not fine, and I does. cannot believe that you think that is fine. I cannot. No, J.D., something is, uh, not what, only what, is it fine, it's your hypocrisy about it that drives me crazy, because you will, you will I literally would never say that. I would combust. never say that. I would Sorry, be ashamed. You, you, will meta- you will metaphorically combust Thank if you. someone says or writes... The situation is fraught. But if someone says be, the situation is freighted, you're like, oh, no, that's totally fine. No. It's exactly the same thing grammatically. First of all, I would not be fine with that. Something must be fraught with, right? I mean, you, Yes, fraught, and something fraught, must be freighted with, but you're fine I would with never, one no, and not the other. I would never other. be fine with that. So, fraught, you both, are. I've, both I can find it in your copy. Must, must, no, you, I would never say that. But both of those things must take an object. It is completely inane. It is absolutely insipid that people say the situation is fraught and they don't explain with what it is fraught. Oh, wonderful. Is it fraught with rainbows and kittens and puppies and love? Oh, wonderful. That's perfectly fine with me. This is this is actually – you didn't like, I don't think, the musical Hamilton. And uh, that's perfectly fine. You ought to have liked it. It was very good. But the one failure of Lin-Manuel Miranda's sort of lyricism in, in Hamilton is when he says – Da, da, da. The situation is fraught. You got to be careful. Fraught with what? Perhaps it's fraught with good things. Fraught has to take an object, and people think that it's perfectly fine to say that it's freighted as if it were all by itself problematic. But they don't. They're not willing to say what it is that's making it problematic. Simply that it's carrying baggage. Well, perhaps the baggage is lollipops or combustible people. I, you know. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the listeners will listen to that unhinged rant. And they will agree. Say, Except, actually, no. Some listeners will tell me that they agree. Some listeners will thank me for being a champion of reasonable usage and, and, and syntax. But at least one user will give us a one-star podcast review that says, like, JD's opinions about grammar are the worst thing that I've ever heard. Because that's, that's what happens when I have an opinion around here. Yes. Okay. Please, if you would, uh, tell us about May I continue? Of- so I think that would be appropriate. What what is interesting about Alessandro Didi ascending to the to sort of first chair in the Vatican City Prosecutor's Office is this: he's the one, as I was starting to say, who when you watch the the footage of the depositions given by Monsignor Alberto Palasca, um, and they sort of at a certain point he ends up having a sort of shouting back and forth confrontation with one of his questioners who's off camera. That's Didi. That when Cardinal Betchew was in court for one of his three or four appearances uh, earlier this year. It, at one point, it got so heated between him and Didi during the cross-examination that the chief judge, Giuseppe Pignatone, had to basically call a recess. And like, okay, everybody's just going to have to take a break. You two need to like retire to your corners and cool off. Because things like, are going to combust. Well, at, you know, Cardinal Becci was like pounding his fist on the table and saying, I've never done anything but for the best intentions of the church. And Didi said, you seem to have selective Alzheimer's whenever we're talking about something, you know, important to the case. And you can't remember anything that involves anything we're talking about. And, you know, I mean, it was this this guy, um, again, he's a, he's a very aggressive uh, prosecutor. And, and again, I think prosecutors should be aggressive. Otherwise, what's the point? Um 
and and it is interesting to me that he has just you know been been put right up the scale because this I guess what I'm saying is there's been a lot of attempts at tea leaf reading about you know uh, particularly that Cardinal Betcher is he going to be rehabilitated by you know like he claimed by the Pope and you know parenthetically everything we said um, turned out to be right so far which is that he got the sort of courtesy of attending the consistory but hasn't been restored in um, his rights and duty, obligations as a cardinal but anyway I I think you know this is not um, if you if you are looking to put a choke chain on the prosecution in this case you don't put Alessandro Didi in first chair yeah, and give him a right. promotion um, yeah it, it's a real it's actually it's a real sort of I mean it's again it's this back and forth in Rome it's this back and forth by the Holy See of like are they behind the trial? Are they not behind the trial? Are they behind the trial? Are they not behind the trial? Um, right. You know, and this uh, is I mean, a real it's perfectly possible they're neither behind it or not behind it. They're just like the trial, the prosecution's independent and they should carry on. And so this is the natural thing to do, in which case that's fine. That's all anyone can reasonably ask. Um, it, it's also worth noting that this will this will annoy the Dickens out of Pignatone, the chief just, the yeah. chief magistrate in the case. Yeah. Because right. he and Didi have a long history where... Um, Basically, they're both, as everyone in the Vatican City judicial systems, they, they're also Italian lawyers and they've worked in Italian. And Pignatotti and Didi have been on the opposite sides of um, a, a rather long and prominent uh, mafia case uh, in in Roman court. And uh, they, do, they don't get along. They don't like each other. They don't have much time for each other. And, Which has played uh, out in, in, in really tempestuous ways in the courtroom. Tempestuous. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Are you, just, are, are you suggesting okay, can, can that actual cumulonimbus clouds break <laughs> out in the courtroom, JD? Can we move forward, please? Which has played out in dramatic ways in the courtroom. I see. Um, anyway, so it's it, it is it is a it is a little line note in the um, in the bulletino today, but I found it very very interesting. So I just wanted to flag that. Oh, I'm glad that you did. So where are we with the? I mean, since you brought it up. And I think it's probably been a little while since we've talked about it. Where are we with the trial? I mean, what's doing, what's doing court wise? Uh, we're we're ready to restart hearings any day now. I think I think in the next week we're supposed to have a hearing. But I and so who's com- who's up for testimony? I'm not a hundred percent sure because when they they were supposed to have one in Ju- they were supposed to have a session in July and they basically um, canceled it. No reason was given, but I it, it was my understanding that it was basically so they could wrangle and argue about how exactly how many witnesses they were going to call because you know they were looking at a, a call sheet of two hundred people and so um, I don't know who's going to be first on deck. I I will find out. I will get back to you, JD. Well, I'm very grateful for that. I wish that we had a sort of choose your own adventure episode of this show. I don't think we have the technological savvy for that, nor I think um, would we do it. But um, I wish that we would, because there's sort of three big things other than the Alessandro Didi thing that have happened in the life of the Church this week. One, here in the United States, at least the publication of the National Synthesis Document of the Synod on Synodality. Uh, two, the um, uh, publication by the bishops, the Flemish bishops of Belgium, of a what you could call a ritual blessing for same-sex couples, a paraliturgical blessing for same-sex couples, and the significance of that in the life of the Church. And then three, a report which implicated the the uh, effectively the vice president of the German bishops conference in serial um, administrative neglect as a diocesan bishop, allowing man with seemingly plausible and credible allegations of sexual misconduct to remain in ministry positions and in some cases assigning them um, to positions like youth ministry and things that would give them an opportunity to um, 
commit acts of potentially give them an opportunity to commit acts of sexual misconduct, including you know positions like youth ministry. So those three things have happened, and each of them is significant in their own way, and each of them is a storyline that kind of ties into things that we followed. So, Ed, I guess since we can't give the listeners a sort of choose your own adventure, I'm inclined to give you one. And so we're going to Stevie. We're gonna just Stevie. Have, Hi. We're going to just have Ed's choice here. Well, I and, was going to give you that. I was I was trying to get your attention, but you were you were back in Wonderland. Um, the, if you uh, don't know what that inside joke means, but, um, what Ed means is that sometimes I close my eyes when I talk and he makes fun of me for it. Okay, go ahead. Sir. I do. Um, I have, I have listed the three stories you just, um, enumerated in a random order. And so you can just pick one, two or three and, oh, okay. Let the fates decide. JD. You wanted to choose your own adventure. Um, do you no, want door number gonna, one, two or three? Let's cast lots here uh, for the answer to this. Um, I uh, always like to choose the Via Media if I can, so let's go with number two. All right. Very well. Uh, Germany it is. Germany it is. Okay. So what has happened in Germany, Ed? Is, uh, well, you could tell us. What has happened in Germany, Ed? Well, what has happened in Germany is a lot of German dioceses, most of the major German dioceses, have been in the process of commissioning and then having published independent reviews on their history of clerical sexual abuse basically usually usually going back to the war i mean it's yeah. usually 1946 forward is is the window so this is i a would long... guess that german dioceses don't have good archival records going back before that i don't that know that would be my guess maybe i i don't want to speculate okay. um but anyway they uh that that's the window of time they're usually looking at and and we've seen these happen in in the archdiocese of munich we've seen it happen in cologne we've seen it happen now in unsbruck uh, where where Bishop Bodhi has been since I think to 1995 or 1997, um, he's been there for a while. Anyway, and I mean none of these reports make for great reading, um, for obvious reasons. I mean you know you you, you know the church has had we've we've said all along that the the sexual abuse crisis is is and was by no means an American phenomena. There were unique situation there were unique circumstances in the United States that exacerbated it in many cases and, and gave it a particular flavor, but it's it's it has been a universal problem. And um so none of these reports have made for great reading. Some of them have been damning about individual bishops currently in service, and some have have not effectively. Um you know, for example, Cardinal Velke of Cologne was effectively exonerated by the report uh, the independent report in his archdiocese said he'd made some bad communication decisions at different points um, in in the run up to the report. But other than that, he wasn't personally responsible for willfully turning a blind eye or reassigning predators or not taking action when accusations were presented. There were some problems in in the archdiocese under his watch, but that they could be traced and um, laid squarely at the door of his his former vicar general, who was then leading up another diocese, but. Anyway, what what is what has been the pattern is when a report like this comes out in your diocese, the German bishops have uh, almost by custom now it, they submit their resignation to the Pope. That they say, you know, I even if I'm not personally culpable for these things that have happened, um, I, you know, there, there's there's a real problem of credibility here. Someone needs to take responsibility, and so I'm going to send the Pope my papers, and I will leave it up to him whether he wants to accept my resignation or not. And usually what the Pope has done is he's asked bishops to take a period of months sabbatical to pray and reflect on the horrors of what has gone. Uh, and and then they usually tend to come back into ministry. Uh, what has happened in the case of Bishop Bodhi is 
And Bishop Bodie's case, by the way, is a little bit different from the sort of general situation you've described. Yes, because the report for a which was reasons. published this week in Bishop Bodie's diocese is not just about historical administrative no. negligence, but identifies it, Bishop Bodie himself as being administratively negligent. As I said, for decades, they identified cases in which he was personally. Okay, I culpably. understood it to be the first decade of his ministry in which he had this. Culpability. Perhaps I'm working from a bad translation, but the sentence from the report I had was in the first decades, plural. Okay, okay of his administration, um, which would take it up to 2015, as yeah. near as I can remember, you know, um, and that he, you know, he was responsible for, as you said earlier, uh, reassigning known predators to other jobs and roles and ministries, including ones with direct contact with or even supervision of children. Which is something that bishops, we've seen bishops sort of step down or be removed for, I, I think, you know, most notably we can think in the United States of Bishop Binzer, the Auxiliary Bishop of Cincinnati, who was found to have effectively allowed someone known to him to have been um, accused of of, a, of a sexual abuse to be reassigned to a parish with a school and these kinds of things. And when when that came out, the Holy See you know, effectively ensured his resignation. You're making, you would like to quibble with that. I would, it's, I don't want to quibble. I just, you know, in the interests of, I, I, the Binzer case was not as egregious as this. I mean, there was, no, there, the, no, the, the Binzer the case priest... was not as egregious as this is precisely my point, right? Right. That bishops have been known for things which pertain to the question of reassignment of priests. Bishops yes. have been seen to have, in some cases, bishops have been seen to have been required to resign their offices for even yes. less than that. Yes. For much less, much yes. less. Yes. Um, but Bishop Bodhi has has not, and he hasn't, and he said he's, he he said he intensely considered it um, overnight. I guess because you know this was he said this the morning after the report, the interim report came out, uh, and he took personal responsibility for all the things that had happened. I mean, the funny thing is, I mean, you talk about a damning report in Bodhi's case. They actually the interim report credited him with an earlier. I think it was in twenty twelve. Very public, and they said very, you know, demonstrative act of formal contrition and apology to victims of abuse on behalf of the church, that he'd made this sort of formal prostration of himself and vowed to, you know, exhaust the church's resources and making amends and all this stuff. And then they just said in the next sentence, um, of course, we have to <laughs> know that this really actually, yeah. yeah, this didn't actually happen in the administration yeah. of his diocese thereafter. So yeah, he, this, pledged, he pledged in a very serious way to... to you know, spend his Episcopal ministry making atonement for victims, and then the next sentence is like, yeah, but he, it was very nice, but he didn't do it. Right. He didn't do it. Yeah. Um, I, which, which I just found, like, that, that in a sense, was almost the most damning thing I read, was like, you know, this guy, not only has this guy done the kind of negligent stuff that bishops rightly have taken to offering their resignations over, but he also has a track record for basically crying crocodile tears of apology and then just like, ah, whatever. I know I said that, but so I don't care. Well, and so that's what the report said. And it was it was quite a, you know, quite a scandal and quite a big deal in Germany because Bishop Bodie is, the, as we say, the vice president of the German Bishops' Conference. He's also the one of the four members of the executive committee of the Synodal Way. Yeah, so he's a So he's driving that train, too. Yeah, he's a prominent, you know, he's a prominent, well-known, you know, bishop with, of significance in, in, the, in the life, not only of his own diocese, but the life of the church in Germany. So that was on Tuesday that the report was, that was published. On Thursday, Bishop Bodhi gave a press conference in which he said that he, w- he accepted the, the results of the report, he accepted that he had been negligent, he 
was contrite for his negligence and he wanted to uh, ask, he said he wanted to beg I read the translation only but he said of a statement but he said he wanted to beg victims for forgiveness and he would continue to beg victims for forgiveness but he said he had very prayerfully considered the question of whether or not he ought to resign and he had um, concluded after much prayer and much consideration and much consultation that it would be better for the reform efforts of his diocese the diocese of Owensburg if he did not resign because there was a plan, a sort of systematic plan for addressing lacuna in the administrative processes of the diocese, and the bishop understood that administrative plan and was working to execute it, and a gap, he said, um, you know, an in, in interregnum between bishops would delay the implementation of the plan, the reform plan, and therefore he had decided not to resign. Okay, guy wants to stay in his job. But here's the really strange part. Then he says... Um, and to make that decision, I consulted with friends, and I consulted with my friend, Father Hans Zollner, SJ. And why is it a big deal that when he's saying, I'm not going to resign after this report has implicated me in, you know, Episcopal, the kind of Episcopal negligence that we've all been talking about since 2018, why is it a big deal that he said, I consulted with Hans Zollner? What's that about? Who's Hans Zollner? Well, Father Zollner is the public face of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. He... Um you know, there was when sort of uh, post the big scandals and uh, the creation of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, the first person in charge of that was Cardinal Sean O'Malley. And it was also effectively run day to day by um, by an American priest, Father Robert Geisinger, uh, a very well-established canon lawyer, um, an excellent prosecutor. And, and he it still is has certain... a position in Rome at the moment, yes? I'm sorry. Who? I think Father Geisinger still has a position in Rome at the moment. Does he? Yeah. I thought he'd. But I he, thought he'd come back to the has United been, States. Okay, but he has been promoter of justice at the CDF and other things. He has been yes, involved he has in had these other, kinds of yeah, issues. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, but anyway, the, the bottom line is, and then there was at some point a changing of the guard, and Father Zollner emerged as sort of the face of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors. Indeed, the face of the Church Universal and the Vatican in particular's um, push for transparency, accountability. Uh, you know, reform in the area of clerical abuse. He's the, you know, he is the fake. Like, you know, if you want to call someone about, you know, the Vatican policy and clerical sexual abuse, you call Hans Zollner. Like, he's the guy, you know, he's he's the public face of the Vatican's response to the abuse crisis. And um, it's quite something if, uh, if Bishop Bodie had a conversation with him and came away from it thinking, you know, Really, the only person who can fix this mess is me. Um, you know, I. Yeah. I, it, 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 it's it's um, it's quite it, a thing. The, the really the only person who can fix this mess of my own making is me. Yes, that I know I've been publicly discredited. His, <laughs> Which he actually own, acknowledged. He said, he said, "I know I have no public credibility, but I am going to keep on being your bishop. <laughs> I am going to keep on being your bishop because I love you all so much, and I want to serve this diocese so well." And he said, "You know, I'm going to dedicate." There, he actually said this. On Thursday, he said, I'm going to dedicate the remaining years of my term of office to putting into practice all of the recommendations of this report. You you know, I want to be judged. I want to be measured by this standard. It's like, Hold me accountable this, to that. This is exactly what he said in 2012. And the report denounced him for saying, you make a bunch of false promises and cry crocodile tears and you never turn words into action. Like, I, it's yeah. baffling to me. And yet, apparently, this decision comes with the imprimatur of the guy who you know, is supposed to be the Vatican's face of credibility in, in the sexual abuse crisis. Like, what is going on? 
Well, so if you are reform-minded, if you have been paying attention to the uh, to the um, to the issues related to clerical sexual abuse over the past five years, which is to say, if you listen to this podcast, um, y- you know you know that the Holy See has said numerous times that they are making you know s- that they are trying to make serious strides towards episcopal accountability, and that the Holy Father has said on numerous occasions that he recognizes that a critical part of reform is not only sort of policy reform or bureaucratic and administrative reform, but accountability and a demonstration of accountability. Now, there's a mixed record you could say on whether the Holy Father has actually sort of held that that um, standard up as, a, as an actual sort of working use vegans in the life of the Church, but you know that the Holy See has consistently said accountability has to be part of this process. And interestingly, Father Zollner is considered to be a sort of a critical part of that understanding because Father Zollner is understood to be a person who regularly engages with victims of clerical sexual abuse and understands sort of their own process of um, uh, of healing, of reintegration into the life of the church and understands the degree to which a demonstration of sort of accountability as a mechanism of justice is crucial for the healing of victims, right? So remuneration can often be important for victims because of the ways in which they have suffered, that they sometimes are unable to work, sometimes they're unable to, you know, um, pay for the things that they need as a consequence of the, the 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 damage that abuse has done to their life, and as a sort of mechanism of contrition, remuneration has has a, a real role, and that has always been the case in Western legal systems. But accountability, sort of justice, also requires punishment. That the church has an anthropology and a sort of um, theology of sin that understands that punishment is a part of the restoration of justice. And Father Zollner has been understood to be the sort of person who is advocating for this notion, which Pope Francis dramatically endorsed when he promulgated a new code of book uh, in new book six of the code of canon law last year that um, punishment is a part of the restoration of justice the holy father has endorsed this and father zollner has been understood to be a sort of crucial voice in that conversation so if indeed as bishop Bodhi said father zollner signed off on him staying in office it is i don't know any other way to say it a scandal i mean a, a, a scandal now it might not be so, right? It might be that Bishop Bodie asked Father Zollner, do you think I should stay in office? And Father Zollner said, we should talk. And then Bishop Bodie went up to the stage and said, I have talked with Father Zollner and I have decided not to resign, right? I mean, he did not say out loud, Father Zollner told me not to resign. He just said all the words surrounding that. And so it is possible well, that Bishop he, Bodie is being duplicitous here in some way or is, or is um, to be more you know, charitable, mis- has misunderstood. But he, he is certainly implying that he has Father Zollner's endorsement. And that's a very big deal because Father Zollner is supposed to be, in, in very real ways, Father Zollner is understood as, in a certain way, the victim's man in the Vatican. And, um, and, if, and, yeah. and, and I think a lot of people will see, if it is indeed true that he told Bishop Bodie, you should stay in office, I think a lot of people will see that as a betrayal. And, and justifiably so. Yeah. There is another issue, though, that we should talk about with regard to this press conference of Bishop Bodie and what it means for sort of reform in the, in, on these issues. But let's do that at afterward from our sponsor. And as you know, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by the Harmel Academy of Trades, a community of work, prayer, and study where men seek holiness through high-demand skilled trades, formation intellectually, spiritually, and with real hands-on actual trades, training um, alongside this spiritual and, 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 and intellectual formation is an apprenticeship um, in the kinds of trades that um, can help you to make a living to engage in work that is dignified and that can support a family. So Harmel Academy of the Trades, our sponsor for this week's episode, um, is a community that believes that human work um, is key to understanding and addressing the social problems of our age. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know about you, J.D., but I have have a number of confirmation sponsees 
yeah. floating around the young men that I have I have service confirmation sponsor for over the years and one of the things I have always encouraged them to do is not to feel railroaded in life because you know we talk a lot about you know the idea of a sort of conveyor belt through teenage years through high school to college and then you know the, you know it, it can feel like there's a sort of irresistible momentum to to the direction your life could take and one of the things I love about Harmel's program is they have you know they have a sort of two-year apprenticeship track program but they also do a gap year like they do an explicit one-year gap year program where you can learn something about yourself something about the faith and something about working a trade in just one year and figure out if continued sort of formation along that line is right for you or have picked up some very important and very useful things and then you know discern into another direction i think even that could be a beautiful thing in advance of seminary formation for some men Absolutely. Well, I mean, and again, I've said this before, but you know, I took a, I took a gap year and I, I learned a trade. I learned, I trained as a chef and I thought it was, it was extremely helpful to me in, in, um, in, in, in all of my later endeavors. Um, and I mean, let's just say if you, I, I think gap years are a good idea. And I think this is a, this is probably like if I were designing a gap year for myself, this is what I would look, I mean, this beats the heck out of laying on a beach in Kosamui and, you know, getting a tribal tattoo. Uh, this is this is the way forward. I, I don't I don't Young understand men. why Harmel Academy of the Trades beats the heck out of getting a tribal tattoo. Isn't there isn't there you know sort of a slug line? But it may be from now on. Nevertheless, you know if you are if you are trying to think about what comes next in your life, or if you know a young man who is trying to think about. What comes next in their life? Harmel Academy of the Trades is a post-secondary Catholic skilled trade school for men that aims to form them in the gospel of work while providing practical training in high-demand skilled trades alongside their robust spiritual and intellectual formation. You can learn a lot more at harmelacademy.org, and Ed and I encourage you to do just that. All right, Ed, we are back, and on the commercial break, we were talking a little bit about our trade, which is um, which is. Uh, we're in the scrivening game, as it were, um, and uh, and so we're going to talk about Bishop Bodie in a moment. But you have you you and I revisited this question about uh, combustible and fraught and freighted on the on in the break, and you told me something again. You reemphasized it. You said in the first half of the show, but it didn't register with me, perhaps. But um, it has now registered with me. You told me, Ed, that in the history of our partnership um, as uh, as ink stained wretches, I have been perfectly okay with the use of the term, and I know you said this before, but you said it again, that I'm perfectly okay with using the, the word freighted without an object and not okay with using the word fraught with an object. And I just find that hard to believe because that's insipid. And I, I, if that is, if I have been doing that, I owe not only you an apology, Ed, but I owe our readers and listeners an apology. That would be... And I our mean, other writers. A, <laughs> and our other writers, perhaps. But that would be an actual, like an absolutely wrongheaded and boneheaded approach to English grammar, and I'm embarrassed. I, as I said to you earlier, JD, it's not your obsession with this particular point of grammar. It's your hypocrisy that upsets me. Well, and it upsets me too. And now that it's been pointed out to me, it, it, it occurs to me, I, I'm not even sure that it would be appropriate for me to remain in office as editor-in-chief of The Pillar because my negligence on this particular issue is not is no small thing and I don't take it lightly. I agree. And I think that if you wanted to tender your resignation to the chairman of the board, I I think that in all likelihood they would We're say We're the chairman of the board. I understand. I think it's in all likelihood the conclusion of the board would be that you should remain in office nunc pro tunc and, you know, basically sweat it a little while longer and, you know, work work your penance. But it but it's important that you take responsibility for this. Okay. So we are goofing around here, but what we're actually talking about um, in this episode is, no, is not a light thing and not an unserious thing. Um, 
because what we're actually talking about is the um, the decision of Bishop Bodhi, the Bishop Francis of Bodhi, um, a German bishop and the vice president of the German Bishops' Conference to remain in office after a report found him to have been administratively negligent. Um, culpably negligent. Culpably I mean, this is, it's right, not yeah. that like he didn't pay enough attention. He did, he actively yeah, moved neg- people. Yeah, right. Culpably negligent for reassigning priests who had been um, c- accused of credible allegations of abuse or misconduct. And that's no small thing. And we talked about the implications of the fact that he, he says that Father Hans Olner, SJ, signed off on that. But there's another thing, Ed. So let's step back. So we look at his sort of decision and we say this decision is you know, very strange and unsettling with regard to the question of ecclesiastical reform and the sort of um, evocation of Father Zollner as a credibility booster is is discouraging on various points. But then if we step back from that, we say the notion that Bishop Bodhi is discussing this issue as a question of his own decision about his remainder in office points, I think, to the greatest sort of lacuna that we can see in all of this, which is that it's not a question for his—Bishop Bodhi does not present this as a question for his ecclesiastical superior— you know, a question of whether or not he will be removed from office after the kind of administrative misconduct that is specifically identified in Vos Estes Lex Mundi as a removable offense, but rather as a matter for his own personal discernment about his own leadership of the diocese. And last week, Ed, we spent a lot of time saying that that the, the Roman pontiff shouldn't arbitrarily remove a bishop from a diocese, and I think we we're right to have that conversation. But dis, as a matter of discipline, a sort of penal removal from office you know, is a mechanism of the church's law that seems to have been entirely ignored in the conversation about what should happen to Bishop Bodhi after he's found to have done some, you know, some bad things in his leadership. Not just bad things, things specifically enumerated as delicts. Precisely, things specifically enumerated as as delicts, things specifically for which a process was specifically created in 2018. And, you know, we have been, Ed, I think, um, laudatory of, well, in certain ways, with Gar... We have been open to optimism about um, the sort of substance of vos estis lux mundi as a procedural matter of investigation, although there are legitimate criticisms to be made. But we have said now frequently, you know, the problem with vos estis lux mundi is in the breach in that the Holy See doesn't acknowledge when vos estis lux mundi investigations are being are taking place. And um, the Holy See at the conclusion of vos estis lux mundi investigations, in as much as we've seen thus far, does not give a sort of substantive report about what it has found. Rather, in the one case that we have seen in which a bishop was found to have been, you know, sort of guilty of misconduct, the bishop was permitted to resign with no information provided to the people of God, save for the information provided from the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis and not from the Holy See. So we have said all those things, but vos estis lux mundi is something. It is a procedure which exists. And here in Bishop Bodhi's case— well, the implication of Bishop Bodhi's press conference on Thursday seems to be that Vos Estes Lux Mundi, which is meant to investigate precisely these kinds of investigations, is not even on his radar. It's not even a consideration. And or so, on Zollner's, I, apparently. Or on Zollner's. And so, you would expect if Hans Zoller took his job even a little bit seriously. I, I think he does, but I think this— No, po- I, don't, I, I, don't I, th- I find it hard in the, in, the, in the face of this particular situation to believe he does. I think—look, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, there are only two ways that this plays— Either Hans Ulner watches watched Bodhi's thing and lit himself on fire with fury and said, how dare he use my name and my office to prop himself up in this? I am filing a Vos Estes complaint against this joker now. 
Or he's like, yeah, no, that's a fair representation of what I think. In which case, as far as I'm concerned, Hans Zollner is just a media talking head. Well, one of our journalists reached out to Father Zollner today and asked him if he would comment on this. And Father Zollner said that he was busy and he might be able to comment next week. And he he's might be able to comment next week. He's very but, busy, JD. Well, he's on. telling he bishops they don't need to resign right, for being criminally right. negligent. He might be able to comment next week. But as it stands, you know, whether or not he takes his job seriously or not, this is a, this seems to be relative to what victims have said and what the Holy Father has said. This seems to be a significant lapse in judgment from Father Zollner and and uh, and from Bishop Bodhi. You know, you would assign malice to it. I don't know what to assign to it. Okay, but I'm not assigning malice to it. I'm just assigning indifference to it. Indifference to it. Well, the fact of the matter is, what we what we do know is that on neither of their radars seems to be this investigative process of Vos Estes Lux Mundi. And so I think we have to now ask the question. You know, four years after the promulgation, three years after the three years and change after the promulgation of Vos Estes Lux Mundi, not only is it working or is it not working, but does the Holy See still consider itself to be bound by Vos Estes Lex Mundi? Well, of course, technically did, it isn't. No, of, no, but does the Holy See, rather, does the Holy See still consider Vos Estes Lex Mundi to be the operative policy for adjudicating these matters? Because if they did, why why wouldn't the Apostolic Nuncio to Germany announce today that an, a Vos Estes Lex Mundi investigation is underway regarding precisely the material which is in the report? Well, yes. What I was trying to prod you into remembering is that technically Vos Estes Lex Mundi has lapsed. Yes, it has. But I think, I think that, I mean, if you want to look to parallel places in the law, what happens at the lapse of a predetermined time? Right. The thing remains in force until notification to the contrary. Yes, yes. So yes. I think it's reasonable to conclude as a matter of, of as a matter sort of of canonical principles. My point is, is the criticism of Vosestis Lux Mundi you most often hear around the professional departments of the Holy See that are responsible for actually investigating and prosecuting offenses. The the sort of the real, the real dudes who who are are in the business of dealing with cases of abuse and stuff like that, their criticism of Vosestis Lux Mundi has always been summed up to me in exactly the same way, which is it is a publicity stunt. It was cobbled together in a tearing hurry in a matter of weeks with very little consultation, very little thought about how it would play. Certainly very not little the way the law is ordinarily promulgated. Yeah, very little thought given to who was going to be in charge of making sure this thing was used and properly and overseeing and all that stuff. And I've got to tell you, on the basis of this, it's hard to see that criticism as anything other than spot on. Because here's the other thing, J.D. If you're Bishop Bodhi and you say, hmm, every other bishop in Germany who has had a report less damning than this has offered their resignation to the Pope and the Pope has not taken it, but it's been an important gesture of personal responsibility. The only reason you don't submit your resignation to the Pope is you think actually he might take it in my case. And I don't want to be the one guy whose resignation was actually taken. Right. Yeah, I'm right. a big deal. I'm the, I'm the vice chairman of the bishop's conference. And I'm, I'm the steering only person, the synodal and, way. And it's possible that I sincerely believe I'm the only person who can resolve this scandal, which I have caused in the dice, in my I diet. don't think that for a minute. I don't even <laughs> think he's that deluded. But I do think he thinks I'm the only guy who can see the synodal way over the line. And I'll be damned if I'm putting that down right now. And I think that's why, you know, I, I, I have noticed that some lay groups in Germany have issued sort of short statements of support for Bishop Bodhi that haven't addressed the substance of the allegations for him, but have said that they support you know, his decision to remain in office. And and I think that there's probably my own speculation, and I want to qualify that's my own speculation, it says it's reasonable to ask if the reason for that is because of his prominence in the synodal way and the implications of that. But let's remember, the entire purpose and premise of the German synodal way is right. it is a response to the sexual abuse crisis to enhance accountability in the episcopate. That is its right. entire rationale. That's, that is right. That's what it was con- called and convoked for. So, Ed, I don't want to be, I don't want to um, do the thing where we simply say, 
this is a profound and serious problem, full stop. This this situation represents, I think, a profound and serious problem, full stop. And we have heard, I mean, even right before we recorded this podcast, you and I heard from some uh, folks who, uh, who work in and around the Vatican, effectively officials of the Roman Curia, who expressed discouragement about the Zollner-Bodhi situation. So, I mean, it's this opinion is not just our opinion. It's shared by people who work in this universe, as you say, at the highest levels. But... Um, I don't just want to say full stop, this is a serious problem, because I think the question is, what can, what could um, American bishops, is there an intervention which American bishops could make here? Is there an intervention which members of the Roman Curia could make here? Like, what is what is the recovery step from here? What is sort of needed? For this particular to, situation? Well, not just for this particular situation, but to address effectively the state of play with regard to this very serious issue of addressing sort of ecclesiastical reform with regard to sexual abuse and misconduct? Sure. I mean, if you want some takeaways, uh, the first would, I'd say, someone should file a Vosestis complaint with the Congregation for Bishops Against If it hasn't Bodhi, happened and, already, I think someone should file one. Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm-hmm. And they should, they should do it loudly and publicly and keep the world updated on whether or not they've received a response, whether or not their complaint has been taken up, whether or not their complaint has been ignored. Um, and just make a hue and cry about that, because again, amongst the thing, amongst the the offices, you know, we've talked about Zillner, amongst the other offices that are completely obtuse with regard to Vosestis Lexpundi is the department responsible for enforcing it, which is the Congregation for Bishops. They don't like to even acknowledge that Vosestis exists, let alone that they're conducting Vosestis investigations into bishops. As far as they're concerned, that's the sort of thing that you know ordinary Catholics have no business knowing or discussing or asking questions about. So, uh, you know, I, I think there is a public accountability mechanism there. Um, but I, I think more broadly, you know, not looking just at the scandal of the Bodhi case, I think there is a question of, there is still, I mean, you want to talk about a clericalist culture. That That's a bishop who has not only been caught and shamed by an independent report and accepted everything in that report and accepted personal responsibility for it, but say, I talked to a friend of mine and he said, I'm fine. Like that is clericalism. That's what it looks like. And we have raised before situations in this country where Vosestis investigations have been ordered into bishops and guys who are on record saying him, oh, he's one of my best friends. We go way back. We go on vacation together. What a guy. Love him to pieces. Is put in charge of the investigation of investigating one of his closest friends. And that is not a process that inspires confidence. That is not a way of doing things that looks accountable or credible or independent. So what could you said, what could American bishops do? I would encourage American bishops for my two cents, for whatever that is worth to whenever they come anywhere near a Vosestis investigation on either side of the football to say, please don't put someone who I went to seminary with and is a great friend of mine, and I go on vacation with, and my Facebook feed is full of pictures of me, you know, yucking it up with, please don't put him in charge of investigating me. Please put someone who can be reasonably presented as being independent. And by the way, especially if they perceive that they're innocent, right? Especially. Um, Especially if they perceive that they're innocent. Because what the Bishop Bodie decision does, and this is a sort of fallout consequence of it, but which is freighted, I think, with real problems. What the Bishop Bodie... Um, decision does, Bishop Bodie being implicated in in administrative negligence and then saying, I'm going to stay in office, is that um, anyone who is accused, uh, a bishop who is accused of administrative misconduct or negligence, who believes that indeed he, you know, he he acted rightly, is going to have a hard time sort of being taken seriously about that because 
these things diminish trust in the credibility of the process. And it seems, honestly, Ed, it seems exasperating. I feel badly for our listeners right now because I'd like to be talking about sort of the evangelical imperative of the Church in the United States and what comes next for uh, for the proclamation of the gospel and the Eucharistic revival and these kinds of things. But the the reason why we have to keep talking about this is because it seems that as the um, attention faded and as attention shifted to other things, even honestly, arguably, to the sort of doctrinal wars playing out in the in the German synodal way, which as much as, as problematic as they are and as much as they represent a problem, I, I, I genuinely and sincerely have faith in the promises of Christ about the indefectibility of the church. And so I think that whatever is happening in the doctrinal wars, I have a, I have a certain real trust that the church will not teach error, but there's no indefectibility with regard to governance. And so... Um, the, those things, as important as they are, the gravity of this situation is that the church ha- has to get this right, and she, in a certain way, is, is walking, playing without a net a little bit more, or walking on a tightrope without a net a little bit more, because th- these are prudential judgments and human judgments, but not getting them right means real injustice for the real victims of, of, of sexual abuse and misconduct. M- my wife and I have become friends with a woman who, was a, who, who herself was a, a, a victim of profound clerical sexual abuse. It's interesting. I, we met her because I, I wrote about her story, and then she has become a friend, and she spent a lot of time at our house, and she, our kids love her, and we love her. And, and my wife said the other day when we were talking about Bishop Bodhi, she said, um, I'm, I'm not going to say the woman's name, but let's say that her name is, um, uh, is uh, Lucy for purposes of this. My wife said, uh, but don't these bishops know Lucy's face? Don't they know her voice? And don't they know the pain that this will cause her? And all and all the other sort of Lucys, um, when these decisions are made, and you know that's why this is not a PR problem. Um, that's why this is not a sort of cultural war problem in the church. That's why this is a problem that impacts like real human beings, and 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 the incar- and, and is incarnational. Like Jesus Christ became a man, became flesh and blood, and suffered, and our suffering is united into that suffering. And these are. These victims of clerical sexual abuse, this is the reorientation that the church needs more than anything else. These victims of clerical sexual abuse and misconduct are the suffering face of Christ in our own communion. And um, and, and so when they don't have justice, when there are smacks of clericalism or a disregard for um, accountability or a we solve these problems or we can be self-congratulatory about addressing these problems, if you don't know their faces, if you haven't sat with them and held their hands and heard them cry— and understood that they're standing on Calvary, you don't have a chance. So, so maybe, I mean, for myself, I, I would say, what can American bishops do about this? Or what is to continue to do what I think the church did so well in 2018. I was so moved in 2018, the November meeting of 2018 of the U.S. bishops, because during the ordinary sessions, it wasn't some sort of extracurricular activity, but during the ordinary sessions, victims of clerical sexual abuse stood up and talked to the bishops. And they saw them, and they actually they saw them as not litigants, or as 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 um, you know, sort of email annoyances, or or as problems to be solved, or threats. They saw them as as um, as Christians, right? As believers, as those who were baptized, and as those whose belief was so harmed by what they had experienced that they had difficulty practicing the faith or believing in the veracity of the church's claims or these kinds of things. And I'm afraid that all of these things that we're seeing with Bishop Odi, and I'm I'm afraid that part of what's happening is that the centrality of the voice of the victim has uh, has been lost, and the voice of the victim has been sidelined, and and the, the consequence of that is that um, 
the, the primacy of Christ's suffering is not central in the mind of administrators as they make these decisions. Yeah. Damn. I'm shrugging here because it's like, I, I, yeah, I right. don't know. I mean, to, no, it's, I, mean, I think that's... I, I wasn't in a good mood anyway to begin with. I mean, I wrote my, <laughs> I wrote my newsletter today in a very dark place. So I'm already, I, I am not disposed to bring what I know you would like to be the sort of grace note of hope at the yeah, end. Yeah, like bring in some levity. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I, I am discouraged, but I'm not despairing, right? And I think that's, you know, I, I, I think we need to look this head on. Um, I think we need to look it head on because we love the communion of the church um, but I think if we really take the Bishop Bodhi situation as a pulse of the situation for the life of the church right now, we have to reach the sobering conclusion that not nearly as much has changed since 2018 as we would sometimes like to believe or as we would sometimes like to argue or sometimes like to hope even. Yeah. No, and so I that means that, that, that reform it continues to be, we continue to be in need of reform in a serious way on that front. Yeah. yeah. Still looking for justice. That's right. Yeah. We were going to talk about Belgium, and uh, we, we didn't we didn't get to Belgium. But I don't want to lose Belgium entirely. So I think the best thing that we can do is um, we're not going to be able to talk about the Belgium situation, but we can do a little bit of Belgium trivia if you'd like to play a little bit of a game before we go. Oh, I I would love to. Okay. Belgium is a Belgium is a is a wacky and weird place. Okay. Have you been to Belgium much? Uh, have I been to Belgium much? No, I learned how to drive a stick shift in Belgium. Really? Yeah, but I haven't spent a whole lot of time there. Uh, but I will ask you a few questions about Belgium. Have you been to Belgium very much? Uh, yeah, when I was when I was a younger man, when I was single, um, you you could get the Eurostar in those days from Waterloo, and and go all the way to to Brussels for the day, and you know it was it was a nice it's it's a nice little chocolate box of a city. Um, there, there is there is good beer and Flanders or Wallonia. What's your preference? Um, this is going to get me in trouble. <laughs> neither okay i don't actually like belgians all that much <laughs> okay but i don't know they're kind of chippy i'll be honest with you yeah well there's a there's a i mean there's a belgium is this um you know belgium is is effectively i mean if you look at the trajectory of um of a uh, troop movement in the in the world wars of, of the last century you could say that belgium is effectively a troop moving corridor and um and mostly that the doormat to france right that's precisely right and i think maybe if that's your national identity plus chocolate you might have you know you might feel a little bit a little, a little bit you know frustrated okay ed um i'm gonna ask you some questions about belgium though because that's what i'd like to talk about uh if we can um Let's start off with just a little bit about the Belgian language, if we can. Um, Ed, Belgium has uh, three official languages, and none of them is Belgian. Right. Um, but what Ed, are the three official languages of Belgium? Uh, the French, Flemish, and I'm going to say Dutch. Oh, you know, it's a common, that's a common idea. Uh, Flemish, Ed, is actually a Dutch dialect, but it's effectively a Dutch sort of regional variety that, that is more or less... Dutch with some regional variations. So uh, you were correct to say Dutch. You were also correct to say Flemish, but they're the same thing. So French uh, spoken um, uh, by the Wallonians. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, I believe so. And Dutch or Flemish spoken in Flanders by the Flemish bishops. Well, then um, I will go with German for... German so. it is! Ding, 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 ding. I mean, it's a useful skill to have if you live in Belgium. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's, that's exactly right. Every so often somebody's going to be knocking on your door speaking German. So, yeah, okay. 
Okay, Ed. Um, how many different? Um, now, and really, one, if you if that happens, what you want to do is basically give them be able to give them directions quickly so that they yeah, can just that's carry right. on through. And that's right. Don't need um, to stop here. You go south. You'll be fine. That's right, Ed. Now, okay. So now, one thing that Belgians are famous for, obviously, um, in addition to their chocolate, is their waffles. Right? I mean, the Belgian toe. Um, Belgians make waffles. This is a thing that they do. This is a they thing do. that they like to do. It's a cultural identifier for them. Um, Ed. How many different types of waffles? Now, we think of the Belgian waffle as one thing, but in fact, Belgians are waffle specialists. They make different waffles, yeah. for, di- different waffles for different occasions, and they have many irons. What, what, they, what, we, what we all refer to and think of as Belgian waffles, do you know what they actually call those in Belgium? Waffles? No, they call them Brussels waffles. Oh, how about that? Well, how They're about city-specific. And do you know what they call them in Brussels? Neighbor, a neighborhood? Waffles. Waffle? Okay, Let's good enough. Waffles. Good enough. Um, Ed, but if you walk into a typical supermarket in Belgium, um, yeah, as I say, Belgians have different waffles for different occasions, many different irons with many different textures, consistencies, different batter mixes, etc. How many different types of waffles do you think you would find in an average Belgian supermarket? I'm going to say 17. Ooh, that would be a lot. But in it fact, would. you can find more than 30 varieties. Of waffles in an average. That's Belgian. the average selection. That is the average because I was trying of to think of the types. upper limit and say, well, you can get a selection of half that in your average. Wow, yeah, thirty yeah. is the average. Thirty wow. is the average. They don't mess around there. Um, and I, when it comes to not messing around, that may not extend all the way to their national symbol. Ed, um, their sort of national, um, you know, identifying symbol. You know, we have maybe Uncle Sam, and um, England has, I guess, Big Ben or what have you. Um, what is the sort of national symbol of Belgium, Ed? Is it a duck? Mm, it is not. Okay. It, it is a. St- I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. It is a statue. Um, oh, it's the it, peeing boy. It's the, the peeing boy. It is. Yeah. The national symbol of Belgium is a is a statue. It's I'm not going to pronounce this Brussels. correctly, but, which is entitled uh, Mannequin Peace. Um, and uh, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but. Um, this statue uh, in Belgium, can, there's reference going back to the statue in Belgium all the way back to the 1450s um, in a sort of document about um, uh, laying water lines in Brussels. There's a, there's a mention about um, this statue of a boy peeing, mannequin piece, who is um, this symbol first of the city of Brussels and then becomes a sort of national symbol of Belgium. Um, so, uh, you know, you can... Uh, you can see it if you visit Belgium, and of course, that's the main thing that many tourists uh, do. The original statue is kept in the Brussels City Museum, but statues have been uh, replaced at various times. Twice in the twice, uh, it was attempted to be um, stolen in 1955 and 1957, and in, in various previous centuries, it was uh, stolen as well. It was broken during riots at various times. So th- this his- this statue has this longstanding history, but the um, but the, the the Belgians continue to identify um, mannequin piece. As their national uh, symbol, for better or for worse, and I would suggest perhaps it's kind of a comedy country. I mean, they 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 had no government for like two years. Yeah, that's right, and they're fine like with recently. That. Can, the Belgians can endure without a government, it seems. Um, well, yeah, because you know, there's nothing much going on. Well, Belgium is a constitutional monarchy, so of course it remains. It, it would have. I will say this: state. the king of the Belgians, or maybe it was the previous king of the Belgians. Uh, I don't, I, I, I don't keep up with her. The, either the current or immediately previous king of the Belgians was a stand-up guy for one reason and one reason. When Belgium wanted to um, legalize abortion, the king abdicated rather than sign it into law. That's and right. they That's basically right. said, well, you can abdicate for 24 hours and then we will reinstate you after we've passed the law sort of without you. 
but he would not put his name as a constitutional monarch even he would not put his name to a law that legalized abortion so he stand-up guy now would you like to hear the legend of mannequin piece there's a legend yeah so the story goes uh <laughs> that in the 14th century the 1300s brussels um was under siege by a a a, a, a regional power another regional power another regional and, power uh, I don't know. For, was, was it a highly organized, efficient regional power? I suspect that the folks were not speaking Dutch. They have <laughs> spikes will. on their helmet and big boots. Right. And... Is, but I suspect, although I don't actually know in this particular place where I'm reading the legend, but Belgium was under, Brussels was under siege. And the city had, um, was, was enduring. You know, the, the, the marauders are at the walls and the city is enduring for weeks and months and the attackers are getting impatient. Um, so they, um, they made a plan. This is the legend of Mannequin Peace. They made a plan that they would put, um, you know, explosives, but effectively TNT uh, at the city walls, blow the city walls down and then enter the city. And um, and I guess, you know, that in those days, explosives looked like an old-timey piece of dynamite from a Wile E. Coyote cartoon or something like that because the legend says that there was a little boy named Juliansk who was spying on them while they were preparing for this attack on the city. And uh, Juliansk waited, and when the dynamite charge was placed, that would have triggered, I suppose, other explosions as well, uh, at the city walls... Uh, Juliansk ran forward and wanted to put the thing out, and the best that he could think of to put the thing out without himself being burned or harmed was to pee on it. And so um, the Belgian legend of Juliansk is that he is the boy who saved the city by taking a leak. You ready for your next question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know where else to go with that, you know? Um, yeah. But I, I think, okay, Ed, these... Um, amazing and extraordinary 1980s cartoon heroes. Um, the, they are industrious um, and well-organized and well-led, but they also have a joie de voir. Um, these 1980s cartoon heroes were invented in Belgium. 1980s cartoon heroes, plural. Yeah. And don't be sad. I mean, don't be blue about this. And oh, mean, the before, Smurfs. The Smurfs. The Smurfs it is. The Smurfs are Belgians. Yes, they are. And let's talk about another uh, famous Belgian, Ed. This Hollywood starlet, you might have thought that she was in Italy, but perhaps she had taken a holiday um, from Rome. This Hollywood starlet was born in Belgium. Who is Audrey Hepburn? Audrey Hepburn, born in Brussels. Ding, 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 ding. Um, Audrey Hepburn, like you... Lived some of her life in the U.S., but held a British passport. She was English, if you will, although uh, she was a little bit more pan-European than you are because she spoke six languages. Her parents moved around a lot, and she was born in Brussels, Belgium. So Audrey Hepburn, Queen of the Belgians, I suppose. I, I think that position is currently occupied, but yeah. I take <laughs> okay. Are you ready, Ed, for the last of our Belgian bits of trivia? Can I guess what it is? Sure, because I haven't decided yet what it is. So you oh, can't. okay. I was I was waiting for you to bring up Tintin because I just thought that you strike me is. as a Tintin. You don't know what Tintin is? No. That's amazing. I I would have my assumption would have been that you were a huge Tintin fan. I don't. I don't. Interesting. Okay, don't. that's that that's fascinating. I I would have thought. I mean, most I think most people would say that the the most famous Belgian cultural export is. What is it's, it, a dog or something? No, it's a cartoon. It's, yeah, it's a dog. A, it's a cartoon of a dog. Rin Tin Tin? No, it's a, it's, um, it's a series of comic books. Well, I, I suppose nowadays the pretentious kids would call them graphic novels um, about, a, about a fearless investigative globetrotting journalist who, you know. Oh, 
just who's very up himself and uh, a bit of a Dudley Do Right character, while also um, oh. controversially playing as as the author and the time would you'd expect um, plays to every horrible Belgian imperialist racist stereotype. Oh. Um, I've never liked Tintin. I, I I never understood the the fascination people have with. Well, with here's something you do like it. Um, this Belgian this Belgian culinary export is perhaps more associated these days with freedom than with Belgium itself. Oh, but we were talking what about... important American staple was invented uh, right there in the Belgium? So-called French fries. Ding, 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 ding. So-called French fries. That's right. Well done, Ed. You are clearly an expert in Belgium. You are an honorary Belgian. I'm going to send you a small statue that I think you will enjoy very much. Um, what, Ed, but here's your bonus and question. And I will micturate on it. What do the, I don't know what that is. What do the Belgians uh, eat with their French fries? They are not ketchup fans. So what do no, they, they, they put mayonnaise on everything. They put mayonnaise on everything. That's it right. is well Belgium. known that if you give a Belgian just a jar of mayonnaise, they will... He's going to ask for a French fry. No, he'll just get a spoon. And I mean, they, <laughs> they're animals, JD. They're, they're absolute savages. Well, we'll they all have, have more mustaches, to say, and I they sus- have mayonnaise in their mustaches. It's the whole place. It's a write-off. I suspect we'll have more to say about that next week on uh, another episode of the Pillar Podcast. But you have a wedding to get to, Ed, and I have to write. I'm supposed to give a speech uh, at this thing. <laughs> I gotta write. It. Oh, are you really? So, oh, gosh. Uh, yeah. So I gotta again. I gotta figure out what it's about, and then I gotta write it. Um, the situation is that uh, they asked me to come and MC this uh, pro-life banquet, and I said yes. And then they asked me to. Um, uh, then a little while later, they I think they had a cancellation because they asked me if I'd give a speech in the morning that I guess you might call the keynote address of the conference. And uh, and again, I said yes, and I asked them what they wanted to be about. But twice they have explained to me what they wanted to be about, and twice I have not understood the pitch. And at this point, I'm embarrassed to ask again what they want the speech to be about, especially because I'm supposed to give it in 20 hours. <laughs> and I... And I'm embarrassed because they've explained it to me twice. But I just have not understood the pitch. So I have to... <laughs> try to understand it then i gotta write something for i mean i don't know keynote address i don't know but i got got a little work to do a little work to do on that good luck with that yeah and you know ed um if i'm really interested in understanding the dignity of the of work i should think about this week's sponsor this week's episode of the pillar podcast was brought to you by harmel academy of the trades if you're interested in learning more about harmel academy of the trades check it out at harmelacademy.org and the pillar podcast of course is a production of pillar media net and jd production i'm your host and pillar editor in chief jd flynn joined by my podcast partner pillar co-founder ed condon and we'll be back next week with a sunny optimistic program